Welcome to the Pine Pod, where we break it up and chop it down. Today here with Reed. Reed is a Dartmouth grad, also super happy to have you on. My name is Jack. This is Jackson Gerard. Great to talk to you today, Reed. How's it going? Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's good to be back with you guys. I'm a 14, uh, which now is sort of an old crotchety alum, I guess, but I still feel like a, like Dartmouth was only a few years ago. Well, it's great. It, it really was. I mean... I know you started out as a geology major, correct? And I know I know you were teaching there for a little while, but made your way over to Bitcoin uh, and blockchain. Love for you to start out just telling us your journey there. How, how'd, you, how'd you make the transition? What, what was the story there? Certainly, yeah. I, when I was at Dartmouth, I studied environmental science um, and earth science. Uh, I was actually a, a major in earth science, minor in environmental science, and then I had, had done some taken a lot of education classes. So I was on the teacher education route and um, spring of senior year, when everyone else had jobs, I had no idea what I was going to do. <laughs> um, and then sort of out of the blue, the organizer of Swiss semester, which is a semester school for high school students, emailed out in the earth science department saying they were looking for a geology teacher. And I got to, like the the job posting seemed amazing. You got to go live in Switzerland for four months, uh, ski in the winter, and hike otherwise in the earlier fall. Um, so I applied for that and got that job, and um, spent two years teaching geology in Switzerland uh, to high school students, which is pretty unusual. There are not many, not many high school geology classes. So I was very lucky. Also not many semester programs in the world. There are maybe only 16 of them. Um, and that was the only one in Switzerland. And it was also outdoor focused, which that was another one of my passions. So um, love that job and worked there for two years, skied a lot, learned a lot about geology in Switzerland. Um, and then, um, switched to a, a different semester school. There's a whole network of semester schools, actually, sort of like study abroads, more guided study abroads for high school students. And so I switched to another one in Idaho and taught environmental science there for another two years. Um, and that one was also sort of outdoor focused, but more kayaking focused, um, really enjoyed both experiences. I uh, got to spend a lot of time outdoors, which mattered to me a lot and, and still matters to me. Um, and a lot of time sort of like unplugged. <laughs> like I didn't have a cell phone while I was in Switzerland and would would often go out on long expeditions in Idaho, week long or two week long expeditions, raft trips, I'm totally unplugged. So really valued that time. Um, and then after those four years of teaching, I, uh, I, I guess I actually inherited a, a big chunk of money and was, you know, teaching does not pay well, <laughs> right? There are lots of joys in teaching and the, the high salary is not one of them, right? Uh, so I was like, not, not saving a ton of money with living very frugally. Like all of my vacations, I would just like go on backpacking trips essentially. Um, 
And so when I inherited that money, I started doing some research around how to invest it, essentially like how to see if I could like pass this money on to my kids or how, how I could, you know, feasibly use it to maybe retire earlier in, in 20 years or something like that. Started doing a bunch of research on, on investing, like read all those investing books, you know, the financial guru books, like the, the Kiyosaki, you know, guide to personal finance, um, like read, spent a month just reading personal finance books. Um, and, and, you know, it was very much on, on the, the train of like, okay, you should probably just put all this money into stocks and just like sit in stocks for the longest time. Stocks have the best performance over time. But then as I was looking at actual stock performance, it, it became pretty clear that like the Fed, um, which is the Federal Reserve for folks who don't uh, know, um, Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. And it was pretty clear to me, even just like studying it for a month, that the Federal Reserve policy was pretty strongly influencing stocks, very strongly. <clears throat> that stocks are not exactly this like free and open market, that they, they are strongly influenced by monetary policy of the U US Central Bank. And at the time, since I inherited this lump sum of money, I was like, well, is now a good time to buy? Like, does that make sense to buy, put all your like YOLO into stocks right now, <laughs> you know, based on knowing that in the long run, it's a good idea, but like short run stocks could like stocks fundamentals or stocks pricing is affected by federal reserve policy. So then I was looking at federal reserve being like, should I buy now or should I buy in three years? And uh, in doing a, a dive into the federal reserve, I uh, realized that it was pretty corrupt and um, and had an outsized influence on financial markets. Um, and the primary people who were who were pointing this out and complaining about this were Bitcoiners. And so I was you know starting to read some Twitter and just look on Wall Street Journal articles and see what people's responses would be to, um, discussion around the Fed and the primary critics were Bitcoiners. And that's sort of how I got introduced to Bitcoin. Um, and at that point, I started reading what Bitcoiners were writing um, because they they seemed to have sort of fallen into the same critiques that I had that I had noticed and they were they were pointing out even more of the errors and and flaws that I hadn't quite conceptualized with the Federal Reserve. Um, they were also at that time in like early 2018 or, or late 2018, early 2019, they were just posting mega bullish charts, you know, like price predictions <laughs> were, uh, I don't pay much attention to them back then, but definitely if you're like sitting on this, on this inherited money and you're like, oh, you know, I could put it into stocks or I could put it into Bitcoin and people are posting these price predictions saying Bitcoin's going to go to 500k within two years. You're like, that's awesome! I want to make as much money as quickly as possible. And so it's just like breathing deep on uh, the hopium, a chart hopium, at the bottom of the bear market. Um, and started buying a little bit then, a little bit of Bitcoin um, back then 
in, I don't know, 2019, early 2019. Um, and then over, over time, I was just trying to learn about this asset. I was still, a, I, I, <laughs> I was still like mostly thinking stocks were the right thing, but trying to learn about Bitcoin. And, and if you pay any attention to financial outlets on, on Bitcoin, you'll, you'll sort of quickly realize that a lot of them are just like quoting things said on Twitter. Like, like entire news articles are just created about like what this pseudonymous person on Twitter said. <laughs> and so rather than reading it secondhand, I just started going to Bitcoin Twitter itself, created a Twitter crowd, started following people. And uh, within like a month or two months of doing that, you can pretty quickly figure out who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't and just like curate this feed for yourself of information. Uh, and started doing that and through Bitcoin Twitter discovered Austrian economics. And, um, and at, at that stage, like in that spring, uh, I just did a deep dive on Austrian economics. So for those of you who aren't, who've never heard of Austrian economics, it's, uh, it's, a, I guess, a heterodox school of economics, sort of a, a it's almost a school of logical reasoning rather than of economics itself um, that's based on a priori axioms. So it's it's this logical school where you can actually like come up with higher order truths based on based on um, like logical steps from a basic axiom. So for instance, one of the earliest axioms is you know, humans have goals. And that's like self-evident. And then based on humans having goals and goals taking time to accomplish and different people having different goals, these are all sort of like self-evident, obvious things. You can build up this entire framework of understanding human action and also economics, which is sort of the interaction, human interaction. Um, so, so Austrian economics studies human interaction on... Um, by looking, breaking it down to the individual, and then um, starting with the, the axioms of individual action and building up from there. Anyway, I did a deep dive on Austrian economics. It's brilliant. I highly encourage folks, <laughs> folks to check it, check it out. Uh, Mises Institute is a, a really good resource for that. Um, but started reading Rothbard and Mises and Menger and Hoppe and, and uh, Hayek. Um, reading all those guys and became sort of in reading Austrian economics and studying the history of money there got, uh, just became a, a Bitcoin maximalist realizing that, uh, that in the long run individuals and in trying to pursue their, their individual goals want to pursue them in the most expedient way possible. And the, the easiest way for that to happen is for people to, exchange their goods and services, their talents for the most saleable good, the most saleable commodity, the thing that they that only requires one step to get towards their goals. So for instance, if you have skills as a carpenter, you're and you want to buy eggs, the easiest way is not to trade a house for eggs. The easiest way is to to um, get your eggs is to build a house, exchange it for money, and then use that money to buy eggs. And um <clears throat> And so the Austrians have a, have a rich philosophy of money and an understanding of what money is. 
And in looking at that, they have a much better understanding than, than mainstream economists and, and that most people in the world have. So in looking at that, um, realize that Bitcoin satisfies all of the theoretical foundations of what money should be, and it satisfies it better than anything else that's existed. And so that turned me into a, a, a Bitcoiner or a Bitcoin maximalist um, and made me realize that all these other altcoins, which I'd sort of been dabbling around with for a few months, were they were sort of unnecessary barter. It was just an unnecessary barter system to have more than one cryptocurrency. And that in the long run, the market will converge on one because the, that is the most efficient way for people to get what they want is to only have to go through one currency from exchanging their goods and labors for currency for the goods and labor um, of other people. And that, that multiple exchange rates between things only serves to sort of slow down an economy and, and stifle individuals. Um, and the only way that that can arise is actually if you have some sort of force. Um, so, you know, currently we have thousands of fiat currencies around the world. The only way that they can really exist is by having a moment. Each government has a monopoly of, of force on their own, on their own people. Um, and so, you know, if I want to use British pounds in the U S that, that I'm not really allowed, <laughs> I can't really do that uh, because the government sort of enforces this US dollar on us. Um, so anyway, back back to the story, I became a maximalist in about 2019, Bitcoiner, Bitcoin maximalist, um, and then started writing a, a newsletter uh, to friends and family and um, and trying to convince them to buy Bitcoin. I had like sort of as a result of this, of inheriting this money, I like took time off work to do this massive deep dive into Bitcoin. And then, um, and then, you know, after about seven months of study, realized that this thing is incredible and I need to accumulate as much as possible. And so then I started getting as many jobs as I could. So I was like door dashing. I was working at multiple restaurant jobs. I was, uh, running groceries, uh, like buying groceries for old people. Um, Sounds like you're very like convinced that Bitcoin is a very good thing. It's a force for good. I know in the past you've mentioned like it has been in your own life and you believe it to be in others. I'm curious, like what are the tangible ways in which you've seen that Bitcoin like have that positive impact on your life and where do you see it like being a positive force for good in society? Or do you think that's an overstatement? Would you not say, you know, make it such a big claim? No, it, it, I would make that exact claim. Bitcoin is a positive force for good in the individual. And as you scale that up, individual after individual after individual, it becomes a collective force within society. But it does start with the individual. And, and from the individual's point of view, I've, I've seen it really profoundly affect people. So one, um, it's easiest to talk about my own personal experience and then sort of scale that up. But um, I inherited a bunch of money, right? And was like, I don't need to work for a few years learn about Bitcoin and then realize, oh my God, I need to accumulate as much of this as possible. And that's a pretty common phenomenon that I've seen with, with other folks in learning about Bitcoin is as soon as they really understand it, they want to become incredibly productive to be able to capture as much value of it as possible before other people realize 
how valuable this thing is. And then they can sort of ca capture the, the resulting growth in value. Um, so that's one, that's one thing. People become much more productive, <laughs> right? Like you work a lot harder so that you can save more in Bitcoin. You cut your expenses, you cut the bullshit that you don't need. Um, I myself and, and many friends, like you just cut out sort of spurious restaurant trips or, or whatever those things that aren't serving you that you're spending your money on. You just cut that back. It like hones in on you valuing what it is that you, that you really want out of life and also, and recognizing you want to preserve that value for the future. Um, so, um, and then, and then the other thing is that it, it really makes you long-term oriented. The fiat system as it exists tends to, when you get money, you know it's going to depreciate. And so what's the point of holding this money for 10 years when you know that inflation is going to eat into it? So you might as well spend it now. And Bitcoin is sort of a disinflationary system, deflationary system in which you accumulate the asset and you know that in 10 years, it's going to, you're actually going to be able to buy more things with, with it. And so that allows you to plan for the future better. Um, you tend to cut back on existing expenses now, save up a lot more, and then have a much better time like planning these long, longer term projects. Um, both things like starting businesses um, or starting families. Um, that's a big one. A lot of Bitcoiners end up like really wanting to start families and being much more hopeful about the future because they can save money they know that they'll be able to pass on money to their kids that'll it's worth even more for their kids than it is for them. Um, so it's a pretty hopeful group of people um, and, a, and a hopeful uh, hopeful outlook that that Bitcoin can create because you know that that your life, even if you just keep the same amount of Bitcoin in 5, 10, 15 years, that's going to be more valuable. And so uh, that... Like you, you can live a more comfy life, and um, yeah. So that that really uh, that happened with me, and I've I've seen that also happen with other other folks. So those those sort of two things, I guess, like uh, scaling back present consumption, <laughs> and then giving more hope for for future. Yeah, giving more hope for people's future. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, real quick, you said you got into Austrian economics. I'm wondering what were the most like influential pieces that you read that kind of turned you onto it? Or if there was one yeah. that kind of made Bitcoin kind of click for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my favorite writer is a guy named Murray Rothbard. He's sort of the father of American, uh, like libert uh, Austrian libertarianism, I guess. <clears throat> but he wrote an incredible short book called what has the government done to our money? So that's that's the most Bitcoin specific topic um, or most Bitcoin specific book the Austrians wrote. Um, but then some other really good essays are Hayek wrote an essay called The Use of Knowledge in Society, which essentially uh, obliterates concepts of, of central planning. So anyone who sort of thinks that any centralized entity is, is able to effectively make decisions for large groups of people 
should read the use of knowledge in society um, because it it step by step proves how illogical that is. Um, so those were probably the two my two most favorite. Super interesting. I know one thing uh, in the past you've touched on one one area you're you're interested in is uh, nuclear mining, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on like the vision of Bitcoin down the road in the future, and also just your thoughts on nuclear mining. Yeah, totally. Those of folks who don't know about Bitcoin mining, it is essentially the way that the Bitcoin network stays secure. And um, it builds this like impenetrable force field sort of around the transaction history and protects it from, uh, from folks double spending or sort of confiscating Bitcoin. So that's the point of mining for the Bitcoin network. Um, and in order to in order to, to to build that impenetrable force field around the network, miners need to consume energy, and they consume uh, a lot of energy. Actually, that's the primary input is is electricity, and they. In order to be profitable as a Bitcoin miner, you need to search out the cheapest electricity, and the and the most consistent electricity, <clears throat> and so a lot of folks run them on hydro, which is very cheap. Um, flared oil and gas is very cheap. Just wasted energy in general um, is really cheap. You know, like in China, they built a lot of hydro dams way far away from population centers. And so those were really useful Bitcoin mining sites for many years because there's no use for that electricity, really. They couldn't route it into cities. Um, so those... That's the background of Bitcoin mining. And one of the areas I'm I'm pretty excited about is mining um, nuclear because nuclear is, is actually the safest, cheapest, and most reliable energy option our, our society has. It's just been pretty strongly hampered by government regulation. And, um, but if, if you have an, an open power plant running, it's unbelievably cheap. It's like two cents a kilowatt hour, which is <laughs> stupid cheap compared to, um, yeah, compared to coal or renewables, which are often you know seven, eight, ten cents a kilowatt hour. So it's like five times cheaper. Um, and so I'm I'm really excited for Bitcoin miners to to start mining nuclear. This is starting to happen um, in Pennsylvania and Georgia. There are pilot programs on, on Bitcoin mining directly linked with a nuclear power plant. Um, and and the, that's in the near run, those are cool projects. In the long run, I'm pretty excited because um, I, I strongly believe that Bitcoin is going to reduce the power of the central government and sort of uh, balkanize the world in a way, which many people, <laughs> when I first say that, think, you know, that's horrible. We want to, we, we all want to live in this one society all together, one world government. And, um, but I'm, uh, uh, very optimistic about smaller nation states, smaller states having more power. And, and as the U S government power is sort of reduced and states or towns power is are increased in proportion i think we're likely to see far more nuclear experimentation done um and nuclear power plants mining bitcoin and um 
and far more energy just produced by nuclear, which up until now has been suppressed by legislation from and regulation from the federal government. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I guess what's your take on off-grid mining? Um, I guess now in the future, where do you see that playing a role um, for individuals, I guess? Yeah. yeah, individuals and companies. I think that it will always play a role in Bitcoin mining um, and that it's it's going to... Uh, can, it already has played a role in it and it will likely continue increasing. Um, so... Off-grid mining is, is people mining Bitcoin from small-scale generation sites that aren't connected to the actual grid. And uh, the advantage to that is they're often, or the reason that they would choose to go with, to mine Bitcoin is they don't have a way to monetize their electricity right now. Like electricity doesn't travel particularly well over distances, long distances at least. And even if you, even, so even if you have a transmission line, you lose lose electricity in transmission but most of these small grid or small operators don't have the capital to invest in transmission lines or or in the case of oil and gas pipes to get their natural gas to a processing plant you know you could be 20 miles out of town and that 20 miles of pipes too expensive for your tiny operation so if you can actually just burn the gas on site and then use it to run miners which are then feed the Bitcoin network off of uh, off of satellites, then you can monetize gas that otherwise you would have flared. And uh, I actually am I'm meeting with the, I live out in Wyoming and there's, a, there's some flares outside of my town and I'm meeting with the owner of those on Wednesday to talk about this. Um, but yeah, they have, they've got a lot of wasted gas that they're just burning right now because they can't monetize it because they're, they are 15 miles away from the processing plant and it's too expensive to run pipe. So they just burn it and waste it. <laughs> and um, yeah, Bitcoin will always appeal to those types of people because um, it'll give them a chance to make money when they were not making money. Super interesting. Yeah, totally. I guess one other, one other area I would, I'd love to run by you, Reed, is I know you started at Swan Bitcoin when they were much smaller, when they were more of a startup. Um, and it's grown for a while now. So you've seen both sides of the coin as a smaller company and a little bit larger. Um, I, I remember you mentioning that uh, you prefer startups because they allow you to take on more responsibility, but it's important to find a good startup. Curious to your thoughts on how to identify that good startup, uh, you know, just for other, other students looking to get, to get in the space and also like love that startup vibe, but you know, um, yeah. also know the risks of, of all the crazy startups out there. Totally. Um... Yeah, tips for identify. First of all, I love startups. Um, huge fan of them, and strongly encourage folks working at them because you you do get to sort of do more things than at a traditional company. You're forced to do more things. You end up having essentially four different positions, um, and and needing to both be director of marketing and also director of social media and also customer support. That was sort of my role. <laughs> uh, like, you know, the very, very beginning, I was doing all three of those. Um, so big fan of them. In order to identify it, they are, they are riskier. So it's a bet that you should take earlier in your career, probably. Because um, if it doesn't pay off, 
you'll still have another 30 years of, of time to prepare for retirement. Um, to identify good ones, um, pay a lot of attention to founders and and try and get to know them as as best as possible, both through social media and also just observing them, talking with them and getting a sense of who they are to make sure that they're not uh, untrustworthy, lack integrity. Uh, those are the main two things to look out for. <laughs> uh, or two-faced, like say say one thing to investors and one thing behind the scenes. Uh, you want to have somebody who's saying the same thing publicly that they are privately. Um, and then the other thing you want to make sure with startups is that they can monetize. A lot of, especially under the existing fiat system, a lot of startups have this vision that they'll just get a massive audience and they'll figure out monetization later. And that's incredibly risky. It, it paid off for Facebook, it paid off for Twitter. Um, but for most companies, if you can't monetize within a few years, you are going to be relying on VC funding and that will corrupt the mission and the vision of the founders. So unless you can monetize and you you don't you really don't need to accept VC, VC funding, um, if if you don't need to accept VC funding, you can stay pure to the founder the vision the founder's vision. Um, it's fine if later you accept VC funding, but but it's really dangerous to to work for a place that has this pie in the sky vision of what they want to happen and they'll get paid twenty years from now. And then as you take on more and more investors, the investors always try to like find different paths of monetization or change what your business is. And um, that's just a dangerous place to be. So <laughs> those would be my two, two suggestions, like pay a lot of attention to the founder and make sure that the business has a realistic and near term path to monetization that does not require VCs. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so real quick, I know this is kind of a subjective question might be a little opinionated, but what are your thoughts on how, like, let's say Bitcoin becomes a reserve currency or more widely adopted. Do you see that leading to less investment into startups in general, just because the money becomes less risky? Um, there's more of an incentive to save versus um, invest, I guess. Yes. So it will. Yes. The amount of money invested in in all things, Bitcoin is essentially going to be a vacuum cleaner for the entire world. Every single asset in the world is going to have its value sucked out of it and into Bitcoin. That does not mean that every single asset will be totally, will, will go to zero. Um, but the amount of money in early stage startups will decrease because people know that they can just hold Bitcoin and see steady gains each year. Um, so clearly, in, in, as Bitcoin monetizes, it's incredibly volatile. So right now you're seeing 100% gains one year and then you know a 50% drawdown the next year. As more and more people use Bitcoin as money, it should, and we're, we are starting to see this, the volatility should reduce and it'll be more like, Every year there's a 10% gain and then occasionally a 5% loss, but a much more consistent and slow 
growth. And when people know that they can just hold money that gains value, they're going to be less, less likely to get pushed out the investment risk curve. So they're not going to need to invest in early stage startups. And the only reason that they would invest in early stage startups is if they firmly believe that those can outperform uh, 5% growth or 6% or growth that you would maybe get just by holding Bitcoin. And so most folks won't take that risk. And the only people that will take that risk will have um, a big insight into that company uh, or own the company itself. And so uh, VC as an industry, I, I expect will go down slightly as will financial advisors, as will you know, bond managers. Some, essentially the whole financialization of the world will slowly get reduced by Bitcoin and um, people will just go back to, to doing the, the one thing that they do really well rather than having to do that one thing and also be a financial expert and play around in the stock market in order to preserve their wealth. If they're good at carpentry, they'll just be a carpenter and save in Bitcoin. Um, if they're good at customer service, they'll just do customer service and save in Bitcoin. They won't have to have this part-time job as, as a financial planner or investor, um, which is sort of the case now. If you want to build wealth, you can't just save your dollars. You have to play around in stocks. You have to try and buy land and speculate. And that in the long run should get reduced or eliminated. Reed, I know you're a big believer in Bitcoin. I'm curious, where are the blind spots in your view? Where are the blind spots of Bitcoin? Where are the blind spots for the Bitcoin community um, between now and, and further adoption? I think that a, a lot of Bitcoiners have overly ambitious hopes for how quickly this is going to happen, how quickly what, what we call hyper-Bitcoinization will happen, which is the whole world moving onto a Bitcoin standard and, and using Bitcoin as money. Because um, for many Bitcoiners, that process of going from zero to you know, using it as their unit of account only takes um, you know, maybe a year or a couple of years. And so they themselves then scale that forward and are like, well, everyone can just figure this out within a year or three years. And so it's easy to project your personal experience onto the whole world and say, well, the whole world is, will own Bitcoin within six years, <laughs> within 10 years. And I, I think a lot of folks misunderstand how deep and long some of the USD and fiat obligations are. Um, so for instance, mortgages are 30 year mortgages. And so, um, you are locked into a deal to pay in dollars for 30 years. And those dollars, the bank that's taking those dollars back is not going to just all of a sudden denominate that in, in Bitcoin. They're still going to accept dollars for your loan for at least 30 years. And, and there's a massive market of 30-year loans in USD out right now. And there's also even longer markets, 50-year um, markets on government bonds. So um, I think that the process of, of Bitcoinization is going to take more than the average, what the average Bitcoiner thinks, which I think a common common 
widely held view is that, you know, 2030s, everyone will be using Bitcoin. And I, I just think it's probably going to be more like the 2050s, personally. <laughs> but I, some people, I think, probably think it'll be even longer. Um, but just due to the amount of long dated maturity bonds that exist, you cannot, you cannot eliminate those <laughs> within a few years. Do you also see a fight by the like existing system, um, governments, fiat money institutions, just to kind of hold on to the system? Um, maybe outlaw Bitcoin or find other ways around making it illegal or discouraging, discouraging people from using it. I guess. Yeah, I think that is definitely happening and will continue to happen. So right now, Bitcoin at least is lumped in, in in a lot of regulators' minds and sort of mainstream media minds with crypto in general. And crypto gets a bad rap because it allows, you know, people get hacked in crypto and your granny loses all her funds because of crypto and Celsius implodes and they're a crypto or Bitcoin company. Um, and, and there's not a, it's, yeah, there's not a, distinction in the government's mind or in in many government employees minds and in many mainstream media minds between bitcoin and the rest of crypto i fully believe crypto is a total scam but bitcoin is lumped in with that and um and yeah we get a bad rap bitcoin gets a bad rap because of all of the nefarious stuff going on in crypto and and i expect that that will continue and that messaging will continue because there are a lot of entrenched interests that benefit from the existing monetary system, particularly people close to the money printer get to benefit from that early money before it trickles down to the rest of the population. And uh, those folks are, are going to continue to try and convince people to accept dollars even when uh, it's in more of the individual interest to, to, accept Bitcoin and move your personal savings to Bitcoin. Reed, I know Swan. Yeah, I'm, I'm not super familiar with uh, Stacks itself. There are 10,000 different um, altcoins that pop up with different marketing gimmicks and um, and what I do know of Stacks is that they sort of sell themselves as, as offering programmability for Bitcoin, um, but they aren't a pure side chain like Liquid. Um, they aren't a pure level two like Lightning. And instead, in order to accumulate Stacks, you exchange your Bitcoin for something called STX, which is, is another token. And then as a result of getting this other token, you're able to do things on their platform. One of the things that they enabled was my, like city coins, Miami coin, for instance, which has dropped, I believe, 95% since it was launched and, um, and seems to just be like a ICO type offering for cities <laughs> to to try and dump on their residents um so not bullish on city coin um and that played out in the last two years 
with Miami coin wrecking all of its holders. And then in, in terms of some of the other, other promises, um, I just think that you can program money, offer the programmability that, that STX claims to offer on either Bitcoin base layer or legitimate layer twos that, that you can settle trustlessly down to down to base layer without offering a new token. Um, so that's, yeah, again, I don't, I'm not an expert on it, um, but it, it seems to look like any other token, <laughs> except they call themselves Bitcoiners and, and try and affinity scam as Bitcoiners, which is a pretty common phenomenon in the space is that people say, oh, we're Bitcoiners, now buy our token. Or we're Bitcoiners, now buy my shitcoin. And that's a common pattern. It seems like SDX is sort of following that same pattern. So I'm just staying away from it. <laughs> they also, oh, the other side, they also just like bad mouth actual Bitcoiners a fair amount, which like on Twitter, the founders, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll bad mouth people who are, are earnest and have integrity. And I, that to me has turned me off. For sure. So I guess uh, one last question for me, um, as a part of Dartmouth blockchain, uh, I've got some friends that are ETH maxis. Um, and I know just in the culture as a community of, of crypto, there's a lot of people that don't see the benefit of Bitcoin. They see crypto as the, uh, as the revolution. What's the biggest resource that you think people could look at to kind of better understand Bitcoin and understand why it's not crypto, it's Bitcoin? If you yeah, it. if you're a if you're a big fan of Ethereum, I highly recommend you read an article called "The Problem with Ethereum" by Tomer Strolight. Um, it's it's probably like 15 pages long, and in totally layman's terms, walks through the design, both the design decisions and the governance decisions that that the Ethereum council <laughs> the ethereum foundation that the ethereum foundation did through a series of years and and points out sort of how how unfair those decisions were so if you're an ethereum maximalist really read that that article the problem with ethereum um if you if if you like other altcoins um and you're uh, you love dabbling in other <laughs> other random altcoins. I would just think long and hard about how you can prove issuance of those altcoins, how you can prove yourself that you own a certain amount of them and that you own a certain fraction of them. So if you own one of X of say altcoin X, how you know that you own one and how you know that that what that the total supply is not going to change. I would think long and hard about that question um, and consider if you fast forward, say a hundred years from now, what are the chances that your altcoin is, is going to still exist? And what are the chances that Bitcoin will still exist? Um, so those are the questions I would ask you <laughs> if you're proponents of other, of other uh, altcoins.
But if you like Ethereum, read the problem with Ethereum. It walks <laughs> walks you through all the issues. <laughs> well, Reed, thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate having you. It's been great to talk from everyone here at the Pine Pod. This is Jack coming on with Jackson on air. We'll be back soon.